Thanks, Chris. It's, it's really good to be here and be with the 24 Church family. Thanks for making me feel welcome, even though I'm in Atkinson and you know my brother. Uh, but no, uh, Birmingham greets you. Uh, I am, I'm one of the pastors at uh, Emmanuel Church in Birmingham, Alabama. I uh, moved there about six years ago uh, to, Lord led us to, to plant a church. And so it's uh, one of the really cool things about, uh, you, most of you guys don't know this, but you know, Chris being a few years uh, in front of me in church planting, I've just kind of been able to, to glean and, and watch and learn from afar as, as you guys have grown as a church, we've, we've learned along the way. And uh, so just incredibly thankful for the 24 Church family and uh, glad to be here this morning. Uh, as Chris mentioned, I am married uh, to my wife, Melanie. We've been married for 12 years. We have two boys. Jude is 10 and Drew is nine. And I hope they're behaving themselves in worship as we, uh, they're probably wrapping up about now. So I uh, hope they're behaving themselves. But uh, let me pray for us. And then we're going to dive into God's word together. If you have your uh, copy of God's word, we're going to be in Mark chapter 11 uh, this morning. Um, and I, I learned that you guys are going through a series in Mark. So I think I stole a sermon from Chris or maybe he can, maybe I'm doing you a favor. I don't know. There you, <laughs> but let's pray together and then we'll dive in. Father, we, uh, we pause in this moment uh, just to invite you, as you already are here with us, uh, we just want to say to your spirit, you're welcome uh, in this place, you're welcome among us, and we invite you to come and to awaken these inspired and authoritative words that we find in the scriptures, that you would, you would breathe over them and you would breathe in our hearts and convict us where we need to be convicted. Lord, encourage us where we need to be encouraged. God, awaken us to the, to the truths that we need to be awakened to. God, we pray that you would work. We believe that you uh, uniquely and powerfully work through your preached word by your spirit. And so we pray that you would do that now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're going to read uh, Mark chapter 11. We're going to pick up in verse 12. Uh, Mark chapter 11, beginning in verse 12. God's word says this. It says, the next day when... They went out from Bethany that day as the disciples and Jesus. He, Jesus, was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree with leaves, he went to find out if there was anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. He said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. They came to Jerusalem, and he went into the temple, and he began to throw out those buying and selling. He overturned the tables of money changers and the chairs of those selling doves and would not permit anyone to carry goods through the temple. He was teaching them, saying, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of thieves. The chief priests and the scribes heard it and started looking for a way to kill him, for they were afraid of him because the whole crowd was astonished by his teaching. And whenever evening came, they would go out of the city. Early in the morning, as they were passing by, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. And then Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus replied to them, have faith in God. Truly, I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, be lifted up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. 
Therefore, I tell you, everything you pray and ask for, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him so that your Father in heaven will also forgive you your wrongdoing. This is God's word. So you might remember uh, this story happened on November 26th of 2010. The Auburn Tigers defeated the Alabama Crimson Tide in the Iron Bowl 28 to 27 on their way to a national championship. Now I realize we're not in Auburn and Alabama territory. That's more my territory. But you might remember uh, this story. As part of Auburn's tradition, you, you may have experienced this before if you've ever been to one of Auburn's games. When they win a home football game, they go to a place called Tumor's Corner where these trees have stood for more than 130 years and they bring toilet paper with them and they celebrate the win by throwing toilet paper over the trees at Tumor's Corner. This is a long-standing tradition. It's part of the festivities, uh, the way that they celebrate celebrate a home win. And this has been going on for for years and years and years. Well, um, there was one Alabama fan who was deeply upset, not only by the loss to Auburn, but by the fact that some Auburn fan had desecrated the great Bear Bryant statue on Alabama's campus by putting an Auburn jersey on it. And so in response to uh, this desecration of the great Bear Bryant, he, he snuck over to Toomer's Corner and he poured a ridiculous amount of an herbicide on the roots of those trees, poisoning them to their sure death. Now, after this incident happened, Updike confessed his crime on the Paul Feinbaum radio show using the alias Al from Dadeville. But soon the authorities discovered that Al from Dadeville was actually Harvey Updike, and Updike ended up getting arrested, and he spent months in jail and owed a, an $800,000 fine for killing those trees. The Auburn University, I guess, grounds crew tried to save these trees, but, but there was no saving them. And the university was forced to replace them. Well, here in Mark 11, we, we learn that Jesus also withered a tree to its roots, but, but not over uh, anger about a, a football game or a rivalry, but his actions were provoked by the barrenness, the emptiness of true worship and prayer in Israel's temple. We're told this story, and it's fascinating the way that Mark tells it. He he tells us that Jesus sees this fig tree and looks for fruit on it and finds none. And then we're we're given this, this story where they go back to the temple where Jesus begins to overthrow tables and, and send out those who are buying and selling. And then we're we're told they go back to the fig tree, and the disciples remembered. We're told in verse 13 that, that Jesus had, had cursed this tree. And so we're left to wonder, what exactly is Mark doing in the telling of this story? Why does, he, why does he break apart this lesson of the fig tree with this insertion of the story of Jesus throwing over tables at the temple? And I think the answer is because this fig tree becomes a perfect metaphor for the fruitlessness that Jesus found in Israel and in its religious leaders. The cursing of the fig tree was a declaration by Jesus of God's judgment over Israel's corrupt institution. And it's also Jesus's intention to refocus worship on a a community of faith-filled and praying people. Jesus wants to re- 
conform the people of God as those who, as he said to the woman at the well in John chapter 4, worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. And so we're told that the next morning after Jesus cursed this fig tree, the disciples and Jesus passed back by and they see this fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered that the day before Jesus had cursed this fig tree and he says to Jesus, Jesus, look. That fig tree you cursed, it is withered all the way down to its roots. Now, admittedly, this is an astonishing feat, right? It's crazy. Jesus curses a tree, and the next day it's dead. What took Updike nuclear amounts of herbicide, Jesus did simply by speaking. Right? But this wasn't the first time that Jesus had performed a miracle like this, right? I mean, the disciples were there when, when, when Jesus calmed a storm. Do you remember this story earlier in Mark's gospel where the disciples and Jesus are on a boat and, and, and I love the, the King James language here, a tempest, a great tempest began to rock the boat, right? The waves are chopping, the, 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 uh, the rain is falling. I mean, this great storm is happening. Jesus is asleep. And the disciples run to Jesus and they say, Jesus, don't you care about us? We're dying, This boat is about to tip over. We're about to drown. And Jesus calmly stands up and he speaks to the wind and the waves and he says, hush, stop it. And it says the storm immediately ceased. But it says more than that. It also says that the waves stood still. Jesus immediately calmed a storm. He showed his utter and absolute power over creation. Or the disciples also were there when Jesus found a little girl whose life had passed from her. And Jesus said to that little girl, Talitha Kumi, little girl, rise. And he spoke life back in to that little girl. The disciples had been there for, for miracle after miracle as Jesus calmed seas and raised the dead and cast out demons. And so the withering of a fig tree to me seems rather domestic compared to those other things. You'd think by this point, they'd have learned that this Jesus guy that they're walking with is pretty powerful. And it's easy for me to read this passage and to pick on Peter and these other disciples until I think about my own life. And then I realize I'm a whole lot like them. Maybe you can relate. There, there have been so many times in my life, right, where, where I've seen the Lord answer a prayer or, or, or work powerfully in my life, only soon to forget about it. And the very next time, I, I find myself in worry and in doubt and then amazed when Jesus comes through again. I don't, I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm prone to doubt and I'm prone to worry. I, I, I struggle to believe in Jesus' authority and his ability and even when I've seen him come through in the past, even when, I'm, when I've seen him work mightily in the past, my faith, my faith is weak. I wonder if you can relate to that. And so when Jesus saw the disciples' shock over the withering of this fig tree, he knows that he needs to press in. It's time for a teaching moment. Because if he's going to build this new worshiping community, on on people who pray, then he's going to have to teach his disciples about what it means to pray the kind of prayers that please God. And this morning, Jesus wants to teach us 
what he taught his disciples, which is this, that we have an all-powerful God who promises to answer the prayers of his children when we pray in a way that pleases him. Now, when you hear that phrase, pray in a way that pleases him, I don't know what comes into your mind. Maybe you think that that means to pray with a certain rhythm or a certain meter, but it's not about the combination of the words that you utter. You don't have to pray like Shakespearean sonnets to please God in your prayers. I, I don't know if you had this experience when you were growing up, but when I was growing up, uh, I would, you know, I would be talking with like a deacon before the service, and we would be talking about how Mississippi State just doesn't have an offense. You know, I'm a Mississippi State fan, and you know, we'd be talking about college football. We'd be talking about our weeks, and then all of a sudden, that deacon would get up on stage to pray during worship. And, and it, was, it was so fascinating. Suddenly, his vocabulary just switched to Shakespearean English. He began to pray in the King James. It was, it was like the Baptist version of speaking in tongues. It was amazing. When Jesus, when Jesus, when, you know, when I say pray in a way that pleases God, like what Jesus is after, what God is after is not how long our prayers are or how short our prayers are or how loud our prayers are or how emphatic our prayers are or how eloquent our prayers are. What Jesus is after is our hearts. He's after our hearts. And so in this passage, Jesus gives two characteristics that please the Lord and that move him to respond to our prayers. And so I want to talk about those this morning. And we're going to look at them one at a time. Two characteristics that please the Lord and move him to respond to our prayers. First, Jesus says that when we pray, we should do so in faith. We should pray with faith in our hearts. Jesus says to Peter, to his response to this withered fig tree, he says, have faith in God. And he goes on and he says, truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Jesus is pressing in here on this reality that Peter's shock at the withered fig tree reveals that Peter has lost sight of just who it is to whom he prays. Jesus says to Peter, have faith in God. When we pray, when we pray, church, we're not just mustering up some belief from inside of ourselves. When I played basketball in high school, and my, my high school coach would always use this word. He'd say, you need some gumption about you, right? When, Pete, when, when, when Jesus uh, presses in here with Peter, he's not telling Peter to have gumption in his prayers. He's, he's not saying that we need to muster up some faith from deep within us. We aren't crossing our fingers and hoping that what we want to happen will come to pass. What Jesus says here is he says, fix your eyes on who it is you're praying to. Fix your eyes on God. Have faith in God. What makes the difference in our praying is the object of our faith. It's to who we are praying to. It's not the faith itself. It's the direction that the faith is aimed. It's the one to whom we pray that matters most. When we pray, we're praying to the one who spoke the world into existence. He holds the cosmos together by his will and by his word. He's the one who created the natural laws that our world operates by, and he can violate them whenever he so chooses. 
This is the one to whom you are to speak when you pray. You pray to the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, to the one who parted the waters of the Red Sea and delivered Israel from Pharaoh and his army. You pray to the God who told the sun to stand still while Israel fought the battle under Joshua's leadership. You pray to the God who miraculously provided for the widow of Zarephath and and the one who made the barren Shunammite woman have a child. Maybe you're here this morning, you're like, I don't know hardly any of those stories. That's okay. They're all found in God's word. They're all found in, in the Bible. And here's the point that I'm making. When you pray to this God, the God of the Bible, you're praying to an all powerful God. Pray to this God and he has all power. And and Jesus says that, that when we pray, we should have faith in God because when we put our trust in him, the impossible becomes possible. Listen to what Jesus says. He says, truly, I say to you that you can say to this mountain, rise and be cast into the sea. And if you pray, And do not doubt, but believe that what you say will come to pass. It will be done for you. Now, this language of saying to a mountain, rise and be thrown into the sea, it's proverbial language. It's it's hyperbole. It's an extreme exaggeration to make a point. And the point is this, that, that if we pray to God with a heart of faith, the impossible becomes possible. That's what Jesus is saying. Whoever does not doubt in his heart, but believes what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Jesus is is telling the disciples, we should come to God with bold requests, believing that he is able to do the impossible. Now, should we pray for Aunt George's bunion? Yes, but we should ask God for more than that. James Edwards, he's a commentator. He says, faith believes enough to ask and is more certain of God's steadfastness than of human inabilities. Faith is more certain of God's steadfastness than of human inabilities. In other words, when when we come to God in prayer, we should be more focused on who God is, who he has shown himself to be, and on the promises that he has made than we are on our own inabilities or on the unlikelihood of the situation at hand. Where's the focus of your praying? Jesus says we should focus on God. See, the enemy of faith is doubt, and doubt happens when we get more focused on our circumstances or on our inabilities than on God's character. Doubt happens when we forget just who it is we're praying to, and we lose sight of the promises that he has made to us. And so whatever the ask is, no matter how huge or immovable your trial may seem, You pray to a God who right now is sustaining the universe simply by the powerful word that he has spoken. You pray to a God who parts seas. Your God is all powerful and he has made you a promise. Whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Now some caveats are in order. Jesus is not saying that if we have faith in God, God becomes our genie to give us whatever we want. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. Shout out to Robin Williams, Aladdin. Loved that movie as a kid. 
So excited that Will Smith is the new genie in the new Aladdin movie. Can't wait to watch that. That's not what we're talking about here, though. God is not our genie. Edwards, again, clarifies here that faith and prayer must stand in continuity with God's character and in conformity with his will. So if we ask God to do something that's out of character for him, he's not going to answer it, right? He's not going to do something that violates his perfect character. And there are times where we may ask God to do something, but it doesn't conform with his perfect will. And so sometimes God says no. But he says no, not because he doesn't love us. He says no because he has a better vantage point than we do on the situation. Sometimes from our vantage point, we look at a circumstance, we look at a situation, and we pray in faith, and we say, God, move this mountain. Would you answer this prayer? And from our vantage point, it seems like God should answer that. Sometimes God says no. But it's not because he doesn't love us. It's because God sees perfectly. He sees the whole picture. He knows how everything is working out toward its directed end. And he knows how everything is going to work out for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. And so sometimes God says no, but, but it's, it's because he loves us. And when this happens, we need to trust him. We need to trust him. But church, hear this. Let's not turn the caveat. Let's not turn the exception into the rule. And stop asking God for big things. Jesus is saying to the disciples that they need to pray bold prayers. They need to ask God for big things. He's saying that when we come to God in expectancies, in expectancy, he hears and he cares and he answers. And so I just wonder what it is maybe for you this morning. What mountain needs to move? What's the bold ask that you need to bring to God this morning and say, God, I trust you. This is who you've revealed yourself to be. This is who you've shown yourself to be and declared yourself to be. And this is the promise that you have made to me. And so I'm bringing this to you, believing that you are able. Jesus says to us, have faith in God. And he says that what moves God to respond to our prayers is when our hearts are filled with faith in him, in our praying. So pray in faith. And then secondly, Jesus says, not only do we need to pray in faith, but we need to pray also in forgiveness. Pray with forgiveness in your heart. Pray with faith in your heart. Pray with forgiveness in your heart. As Jesus is exhorting his disciples to pray boldly, encouraging them to to ask For big things, he offers this caveat in verse 25. He says, and whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him so that your father in heaven will also forgive you your wrongdoing. Now, this might seem like a strange addition to this conversation on prayer. Jesus is is exhorting the disciples to pray bold prayers, to pray big prayers, to to pray in faith for God to move mountains, to do the impossible. And then all of a sudden he adds this little addendum, this additional instruction that if they stand praying, which would have been a common posture 
of prayer in the Jewish tradition. That if they stand praying and they then realize that there's beef between them and anyone else, if they're unreconciled to a brother or to a sister, if they have not forgiven someone, that they should stop their praying and that they should immediately go and be reconciled to that brother or that sister before they continue on in prayer. Forgive, Jesus says, so that your Father in heaven may forgive you. This, this instruction on prayer actually echoes Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 6 when he's teaching on how to pray. And Jesus teaches us in the model prayer. Maybe we call it the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our debts or forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. But then it's interesting, at the end of the Lord's Prayer, we get this addendum. And Jesus says in Matthew 6, 14, for if you forgive others their offenses, your heavenly Father will forgive you as well. But if you don't forgive others, your Father will not forgive you. These are loaded words. It sounds to me like Jesus is is making a conditional statement here. Like he's saying, like, if we forgive others, God will forgive us. If we don't forgive others, God won't forgive us. And I read that, and I'm like, I don't know what to make of that because I thought we were saved by grace, not by, like, doing forgiveness, right? How does this relate to everything else Jesus has been saying about praying bold prayers and praying in faith and asking God to move in power? What is Jesus saying here? What's he doing here? I've I've thought about that a lot. And I, I think the answer is this. I think what Jesus is saying is this. Forgiveness is the greatest miracle. Forgiveness is the most powerful act that God could do in and through our lives. It is the greatest act of God's power that we can experience. The greatest act of power that could ever be displayed in your life is the act of God's forgiveness toward you through his son, Jesus. And if God can forgive your sins, then he can do anything else we ask. Right? The quandary of the universe is this. How can a holy God accept sinners? And the answer is that God has made a way through Jesus. He has done the greatest miracle of all by making a way for us to be forgiven of our sins. And the way that we genuinely know that we've experienced the miracle of God's forgiveness in our lives is through our willingness to forgive others. I think that's what Jesus is saying here. The litmus test of your faith in God is your ability to forgive others the way he's forgiven you. See, when God truly saves us from our sins, we don't just maybe come forward and pray with a pastor. We don't sign a card. We don't just join a church. We don't just get baptized. Our hearts are changed. When we're truly forgiven of our sins, when we truly become a follower of Jesus, our hearts are changed. And the result is that we become a forgiving person because we are a forgiven person. And that act of God's forgiveness toward us is the gateway to his power in and through our lives. We can't expect God to move other mountains in our lives if he's yet to move the mountain of sin in our heart. And so instead of continuing on with other prayers, Jesus says, just stop it. You can stop right there in your praying. Start there. Be reconciled to God. Receive the forgiveness that he offers through his son, Jesus. Oh, and then go be reconciled to your brother and forgive them. Before you ask God for anything else, 
Pursue forgiveness. Let that mountain be moved. So I think we just need to pause this morning. And just need to ask, is there anyone in your life with whom you need to be reconciled? Jesus says this takes priority in your life. He says, if you have anything against anyone, go and forgive them. No matter what it is, pursue forgiveness. Because no matter what it is, you wronged God worse. No matter what someone has done to you, you were a worse offender. You wronged God. You wronged a holy God. You were treasonous and rebellious and sinful to God, the one who made you. And he, through his son Jesus, has forgiven you. And so you, in turn, go be reconciled. And so I want you to listen to this, 24 Church. If you approach God in prayer, asking him to do a work in your life, maybe some of you this morning are facing financial burdens. You're facing what seems like a financial mountain, and you're saying, God, would you move this mountain? Maybe you're facing a sickness or disease. Maybe a loved one is sick and in the hospital, and you're, you're praying to God, God, do the impossible. Would you, would you work mightily? If you're praying those prayers, but you're unwilling to be reconciled to a brother or to a sister, to a spouse, you're harboring bitterness in your heart, you're harboring unforgiveness in your heart, your prayers are actually empty of faith. No matter how emphatic, no matter how emotional you pray, Jesus says your prayers are empty of faith and you're behaving like a hypocrite. And so he says, stop praying for God to move in power in all of those ways. And while you're harboring unforgiveness in your heart, you're harboring bitterness in your heart and go be reconciled to your brother. This is maybe one of the reasons you've yet to see God answer your prayers or you've yet to see him manifest his power in your life. It's because you're holding a grudge. And you're failing to forgive someone. Maybe that's why our churches are not experiencing more of God's outpouring of his power. It's because forgiveness is the greatest miracle, church. And, and I believe this with all my heart, that when, when the mercy and grace of God is manifest among us, like when we're experiencing the forgiveness of God, when, when we are living in, 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 the, in the reality that we have been forgiven much, and that's flowing out of us toward our brothers and our sisters, and we're living in a posture of mercy and love and grace, I believe it will astound others the way Peter and those disciples were astounded at that fig tree. People are going to look at us and go, man, I've never seen anything like this. Nothing will be more compelling or surprising to those skeptical of Christianity, to those wondering what it's all about, than when they see God's people forgive each other and love each other and show mercy to each other. And I think this is the gateway for experiencing more of God's power in our lives. Do you want more of God's power in your life? Do you want to see God do mighty things? Do you want to see him move mountains? Husbands, forgive your wives. Brothers and sisters, don't harbor bitterness towards one another. Be quick to forgive. Pursue one another in love and mercy and forgiveness. When our actions with one another are being informed by God's grace and forgiveness, I think we are preparing the way for God to move in power among us. When our hearts are informed by God's forgiveness and we're aware of his mercy and we're extending that mercy to others, 
I think then we will pray bold prayers and we will believe that God hears us and we will, and he will respond because we'll know that if God can save me, if God can change my heart and make me want to forgive, if he can do that, then what he can do, whatever it is I'm asking him to do. He can move this mountain. And so Jesus exhorts us to faith. Jesus exhorts us to forgiveness. And he exhorts us to prayer. And these three really go together. Faith and forgiveness and prayer. And when they are present, Jesus says to us, whatever you ask, whatever you ask, it will be yours. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you humbly. God, confessing the weakness of our faith, we often We often fail to, to really believe in your power and we, we pray weak prayers. We don't really believe you're who you say you are and that you do what you'll say you'll do. So Father, forgive us for the weakness of our faith. We pray that you would strengthen us, strengthen our faith by helping us look to Jesus. Remind us that our savior rose from the dead and if you can conquer the grave, then you can do whatever we ask. You can move mountains. Father, we also confess this morning that often we'll pray big, bold prayers, but we don't believe in you for things like forgiveness. Lord, I think you're teaching us that this, it starts with forgiveness. You have forgiven us much, and you call us, therefore, to forgive others, to live in the pattern of forgiveness that we've received. And so, God, I pray I pray this morning that you would help us to be sensitive to your spirit. Maybe, maybe you want to quicken us to pray a big prayer and to believe it in faith. God, maybe you want to call us to repent of harboring a grudge or, or bitterness. Maybe you want to call us to go be reconciled to a brother or a sister, to a spouse. Lord, I pray that we would be an obedient people, that we would respond in obedience to what you're telling us this morning. God, I pray that we would respond however you're leading us to respond. And that God, as your forgiveness and mercy flows from the inside out, God, as we're a, we live consciously aware of the good news that we have been forgiven, that as we forgive others and live as a community of grace and mercy, that Lord, it would astound this community, that people would come to know you as a result, that you would move in power, the mountains would be moved, that Jesus, you would be exalted. And we pray it in Jesus' name.